explains as we come again to the word of the living God and continue on in our series dealing with this little epistle. I'm going to read from verse 1, just read the opening five verses this morning of the first chapter, First Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's hear the word of God from verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Amen. And the Lord bless his word, our reading of it, and our meditation in it here this morning. Let's all still our hearts before the Lord briefly in prayer. Father, we come again momentarily just to commend ourselves to thee recognizing the help that we need when we come to the Word of God. We need help in every area of worship. But in some ways, we we really need help here. I pray that Thou wilt give that spirit of worship to all that hear, and the help to worship even to the preacher, that the preaching would come in a worshipful way, with an understanding of who Thou art, and with a recognition of our obligation before thine eye. Give us help. We pray for the fullness of the Holy Ghost. We pray for the power that thou hast promised. And we ask that there may be very evident signs of profit from the word today. Maybe we will not see them visibly, but we pray that the hearer will feel it and know it, and that all of us will experience what it is to hear from God that Thou wilt use Thy Word. Even as we've been singing, we pray, Lord, that there may be a sending forth of us all to preach Christ. And perhaps even some here, in a very particular sense in which they are being moved and called of God to give their lives to the ministry. May it please Thee, Lord, to work in hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you've been here for the past number of weeks as we have commenced our study here in this little epistle, we haven't gotten too far, but I trust we've already been encouraged by the writing of the Apostle Paul to this little congregation in the city of Thessalonica. We noted after a kind of background message when we came to verse 1, the greeting of the Apostle Paul as he encouraged them, as he often did, in seeing what they are in the Lord Jesus Christ and what they are in God the Father, the tremendous unity that they now have with the true and living God. This had not always been the case. As we will get to later in this chapter, verse 9 tells us that they had once worshipped idols, given themselves to idolatry, and now they're worshipping the true and living God. And they're serving Him and rejoicing in Him. But it's not just a change of practice. It's not just a change in in their habits. It's not just that they now go to different places of worship and say different words in their worship. Their whole heart, their whole mind, everything about them has been transformed. And there's now this vital union with their God. Before they, they would know about their God, they would ask for favor from their gods. But now they are in a relationship, a knowledge of God, where they are rejoicing in this sense of grace and peace that Paul expresses there at the end of verse 1. 
And in verses 2, 3, and 4 that we looked at last week, we saw there that Paul is presenting his gratitude for them, his rejoicing in the fact that he knows that they really are the people of God. The, the kind of This one sentence that's here really hinges on verse 4 where he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I know this. And of course, the question that we sought to deal with last week was, how did he know this? How was he able to make such a statement that he knew that they were elect of God? That's a very strong statement to make. But he was aware of it as much as man can be by what he tells us in verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know, we all know, if we've been Christians long enough and we have read through the Word of God, we know that there's a certain sense, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. And there's a sense in which the infallible knowledge of who belongs to God is only with God. None of us truly know who the Lord's people are in the infallible sense. And yet even there, in that verse, he goes on immediately to say, And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And so he encourages, right when he says that only the Lord knows them that are His, he encourages those that profess to know the Lord to have a certain way of living, characteristic that would, be, that would exemplify that truly they are the Lord's, that everyone could see, that they depart from iniquity. <laughs> doesn't take Paul too many words to convict us, does it? To draw the very, kind of put a sharp point on the real heart of the issue, that if we truly are the Lord's, and God really knows us, we will be known by this, we depart from iniquity. People are known, according to the Lord Jesus, Matthew seven sixteen, by their fruits. Speaking there particularly about prophets, but I think it applies, uh, applies generally across the board. And he also said in Matthew 5, verse 16, Our good works can be used by the Lord to lead others to glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so how we live is an integral part of identifying whether we are the Lord's. And so Paul, again, has no qualms at all in saying, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I know this because your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because these things, this, these, these trinity of graces, are manifested in your life, I know, as much as any man can know, that you have been chosen by God, that you belong to Him. Now, what had made this change in their lives? Well, ultimately, for our encouragement, verse 4 says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, beloved, those of you who are loved of God, beloved of God, knowing that you're beloved, is really that sense that he's, he's highlighting, highlighting that. You're, you've been loved of God, and because you're loved by God, that has, has flown out of that is the fact that you are known now that you're elect. God has loved you, he has chosen you. Love precedes the choosing. And because that is true, therefore all of this has come to pass. Now that's the foundation. If God does not love a man, he will never come to be known by God or to know God himself. But there are practical aspects as well. It's not just that. Ultimately, God has loved them, chosen them. But God has used preaching to communicate that love. And that brings us to verse 5 where we will get no further today, and we'll not even deal with all of verse 5 today, just the first part. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. Paul turns our attention to something that was integral in the bringing about of this church. And that was that there needed to be a, a man who would declare the Word of God so that these individuals, these people that had come to know the gospel, would actually know about it and respond. It's impossible for a church ever to be established if there are not preachers to preach the Word of God. It will never happen. It can never occur. 
And so while God may love and set His love upon men and choose them in His Son from before the foundation of the world, the evidence of that love being known in an individual's life, in a community, can never come about without the preaching. And so Paul goes on to deal with this integral part, this practical aspect of this church being uh, coming to fruition in that city. And here he's really kind of turning his attention away from the experience or activity of the church to, for the most part, focus upon his own experience when he was there. The experience of the preachers. And in that sense, I think it contributes something to what we've already looked at, that, that Paul's conviction about knowing that they are elect of God was also bolstered by what he experienced when he went there. And when he went there, well, this is what happened. Our gospel, that is the gospel we brought to you, came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And he's really kind of reflecting his own testimony. Your testimony is this. Verse 3, the transformation of your lives. That is evidence that you're elect of God. But coming alongside that, contributing to this knowledge, is my experience, our experience as preachers of the Word, that God was there when we went to your city. And God gave us help to bring the Word to you. This morning, as we look at the opening part of verse 5, the first part of it, I want us to consider true preaching makes a difference. True preaching makes a difference. And it certainly made a difference in this city. There's a, a few, well, four points here this morning that I want us to consider as the Lord gives us help. First, the practice of preaching. In verse 5 he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and so on. It came not unto you in word only. The first thing I think that we need to see here is the fact that the gospel came unto them. Now he's making a point that it didn't come only in, by means of word. But in the midst of saying that, he is saying that it came to them. The gospel came to them. In other words, it was communicated to them. And that's what I want to highlight before we go any further in understanding this text. Preaching, in a very real sense, is the most essential work of the church of Jesus Christ. It is not the only work. And there is a deficiency if it is the only work in what we are about. But it certainly is, I think we can say, the most essential work in the extension of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I think the language of our Lord makes that plain. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, well-known verses, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So Our teaching flows out of the Lord's commandments to us. His preaching to us turns our, turns, causes us to then preach out to the world. So preaching, teaching, communicating knowledge and understanding is an essential part of this whole work. We are told also by the Lord Jesus at the end of Luke 24, verse 47, again coming in with this whole idea of going into the world, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations. So, the Lord made it plain that in, the, in generalizing the work of the church, and that's what He's doing, He's not saying that this is the only thing they're going to do. When we come into the book of Acts and we read through the epistles, there's a lot more going on. But when it's summarized by the Lord's command to His apostles, it's summed up in this activity. Teaching and preaching the Word to the nations. Now, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, and I could take time to go there and read a number of the verses, but I want to just focus in on a few of them. He quotes the prophet in verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's a tremendous truth. If anyone, listen, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, if they desire to be forgiven their sins, if they want to know peace and pardon, whosoever, no barriers, no limita limitations of entry, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. That's glorious. And Paul again is quoting there the prophet Joel. He is is reminding the people of, of this tremendous truth. If anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. That there's an open arm of of the Lord to sinners calling them to Himself. The question is, how does that come about? How do men know that there's a God who so willingly and freely invites them to be forgiven? Will they just know it within the depth of their own being? Are they born with some innate understanding that God calls them to Himself? They have an understanding of who He is, but they do not have an understanding of how they can come to know Him. And so, logically, in verse 14, he says this, Given the case that if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved, he then asks this, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It's not possible. It's not possible for men to call upon the name of the Lord without preachers that bring an understanding that leads to faith. And this is why later on in verse 17 he says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's an absolutely essential part. Romans chapter 10 exposes very clearly any so-called advances in the kingdom of Christ that does not stem from preaching. And this goes on. This is going on today. It's being propagated in evangelical churches, some of them. People go on and talk about converts through dreams. Individuals that have never heard the gospel, never come across the Scriptures never known anything about the Lord Jesus Christ at all, apparently having a dream and coming to a saving knowledge of God. That they understand Christ and they they know God and they've been saved. It's not possible. Not in the sense that God's not able to do it, but God has not so planned it to be that way. This is so plain... Just turn for a second to Acts chapter 10. Central passage in exposing the kind of garbage that goes on in our day. And again, this is an unusual event. That which surrounds Cornelius, Roman centurion, and his salvation. In a very real sense, it's, it's it's the opening of the door to the Gentiles. And so it's not the normative, we might say. The Holy Ghost comes down, there's a speaking of tongues to to give evidence that the Holy Spirit has been given to the Gentiles. All of that is going on. But even here, there's a need for preaching. And I'm not going to give all the background. Peter has been in Joppa. He's there. He's staying with one Simon a Tanner. And he is up praying before the Lord and and Cornelius, you see from the beginning of the chapter, this man, he's, he's a devout man. He fears God with all of his house and he helps in whatever way he can. Again, it leads into something of what we were dealing with in, in, in Bible class in our, our adult Sunday school this morning. He gave alms to the people and prayed to God always. There, there's good being done here by this man, but I don't believe he's regenerate because of what happens and what occurs and what is testified to later on. But he sees a vision evidently God comes to Cornelius and he is told to send for Peter. Verse 5, Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon whose surname is Peter. So he gets a vision. And what does the vision do? It communicates to him the need for what? The need for a preacher. It doesn't communicate to him the gospel. It doesn't reveal to him how he can be saved and truly know God in that saving way doesn't present to him the gospel at all. It tells him, go and find a preacher. And I'm not going to read it all. You read through Acts chapter 10 into Acts chapter 11 where Peter rehearses what happens on that occasion. And he says that he came to tell them words by which they may be saved. And this was his whole purpose. Verse 22 of chapter 10 says, they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man and one that feareth God, 
They're calling for Peter to come of good report among all the nation of the Jews was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. An angel comes to Cornelius, this, this devout man. But the angel comes not to tell him the gospel. The angel comes to say, send for a preacher. Get a preacher. Now, if this is, again, an unusual circumstance in many ways, certain miraculous things are going on here. This doesn't happen in everyone's life this way. But there's a principle that's, that's bedded into all of this. And that is, if anyone is going to come to know Christ, there has to be some form of preaching involved, even if it's just in the written sense. And they're reading the very words of God and reading Scripture. They come to understand the Gospel and they believe what they read. That may be the case. But very often it is through the instrumentality of men. God has sent preachers. And <laughs> in many ways, their job is safe. They will never be redundant. There's always a need for preachers. Always a need for men to preach the Word of God in whatever context God uses men to preach His Word. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. God sent men to preach the Word. Before this, there was no church. There was a synagogue, but there was no church. There were people there that perhaps feared God, but they didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the first point. This is fundamental to understand. Don't, don't be swayed by all the kind of things that's going on. Certain in, in Muslim nations, certain Muslim individuals, and they, they saw a dream, and, and Jesus came to them, and they believed, and, and so on, and so forth. Look, I'm, I, I don't know what's going on. I can't uh, deny any experience except this. If a preacher is not involved, and you don't know the gospel by reading the Word of God, and it hasn't been communicated to you in some way, up to that point at least, you can never be saved. You just can't be saved. If it was going to happen, it would have happened in Acts chapter 10, but it didn't. God uses preachers. This is why the Great Commission is so essential. If the church doesn't go, men don't hear. That's Paul's argument in Romans 10. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It doesn't come by any other way. Saving faith will not be experienced unless men, women and men, go forward with the message of the Gospel. So let us not fall into some kind of thinking where really what we're doing was beginning to make preaching and missionary work some kind of uh, secondary thing or a supplementary to other experiences. It's the only plan God has to reach the nations. The only one. So, our gospel came not unto you, he says, but we might just say that the gospel came to them. It did come to them. The practice of preaching is essential. The gospel came to them. And let us not limit it to the nations. It's also true of your neighbors. You can pray and pray and pray all you like that they may be saved, but at some point, you or someone else is going to have to come and communicate the gospel to them. At some point. It's God's way. Shirk this responsibility. We will never see souls saved. You can pray all day long. Pray all day long. Unless you speak the Word, they will never be saved. So when her sister told me yesterday that she got an opportunity to talk to her father and communicate the Gospel to him, and he said he trusted in Christ, he's, he's trusting, he's turning to the Lord, asking Him for forgiveness, it came because it was communicated. She got an opportunity, she seized upon it, and she took it, and the Lord blessed it. That's the way it goes. Secondly, the power that attends true preaching. The power that attends true preaching. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. Now there are three things here. There's a parallelism that's used by the apostle. It's also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And there's a sense in which well, some take it to be like three separate things. You have power, and some may say, well, that's kind of like the sign miracles that attended the apostles. The Holy Ghost is the work of the Spirit to draw men to Christ, and much assurance was the conviction of the preachers as they preached with confidence the Gospel. But 
Again, I think what Paul's doing here in verse 5, what he is doing in context, as far as I see it, is he is drawing from his own experience and he's testifying of how he saw the work of God unfold in that city. And so as he observes the change in their lives, he is further strengthened by a sense of conviction of what happened there because of what he experienced, what they experienced as they preached the Word. And so this power and working of the Spirit and much assurance, I think, come together really as one thing and they're interconnected in a real way. And the main point really is this, that it wasn't preaching for the sake of preaching. That is certainly undeniable. Our Gospel came not unto you in word only. It didn't come just as mere words. It wasn't just standing up there saying words or communicating information. Sometimes when you preach, it feels that way. It does. It feels like you're just communicating information. And you're just sharing thoughts with people. But what you want to experience, what you want to know, is this power that attends the communication of the Gospel. And that's what Paul experienced there. True preaching, you see, is supernatural. It is unlike anything else. And it does things that are like nothing else in the world. If your idea of preaching is just, again, teaching the Word of God, just was it Lloyd-Jones? When someone asked Lloyd-Jones, I'm going from memory here, someone I think asked Lloyd-Jones on one occasion, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? (laughs) And his witty response to that was simply this, if you have to ask the question, You've never experienced preaching. And I think there are many people today that have never experienced preaching. There are men that get up and they handle the Word and it's truthful in what they say. And you wouldn't have to correct much of what they communicate. But, but there's, 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 a, there's, there's not just a loss of, of the sense of the power in the preaching. But nowadays, there's a loss of even the awareness of the need for it. One of the things I'm grateful for, very grateful for, and we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Far from it. I think sometimes we are even more guilty because of the deposit of knowledge that God has given to us. But one of the things I'm thankful for is when I was saved and came into this denomination and began to listen to preaching, both that was from the present at that time and from the past, that I was being, uh, being confronted with this need. This need of something that was supernatural in evangelism and in preaching. That men, if they are to be anything for God and do anything for God, must be men that know the supernatural upon their lives. Any of us who have been a part of this denomination for any length of time have heard the stories of the 36 hour prayer meeting. I mean, and that, that in many ways kind of, it wasn't, it wasn't the foundation. These men already understood it. That's why they're praying. But, but as you come after these generations and you hear about that and you also see the just normal men in many ways, but with tremendous unction and power in their delivery of the Word. You have, some of you have sat in meetings, normal Lord's Day meetings, normal camp weeks away or whatever. You've sat in regular meetings where you assemble together with those of like precious faith, but you've sat there and you've been confronted with something that can only be described in terms of the supernatural. That you sit there and you know that, that God was there. Or you witness the quiet sobbing of souls in the pew behind you, beside you, in front of you. You, you see people affected by the Word. Now you take the same sermon. And I heard it. I heard one man get up and preach one time. Word for word, a sermon by Dr. Paisley. It was kind of an open air meeting and they were addressing a lot of unsaved men and <laughs> I wasn't a Christian very long and I was there standing in the crowd and he was he was preaching a message that was it was <laughs> Mr. Paisley's message pretty much word for word and he got up and he preached it well I'll tell you what 
The thunder of God that was there when Mr. Paisley preached it wasn't there that day. It was the same words. The same words. But not the same power. Paul experienced this. He knew when he went into that city, God had established a work because the gospel came not unto you in word only. Now they would have had nothing to compare it to. Those that were saved, this is their first experience of the gospel being preached. They can't do an A-B test here and see the distinction between when others had passed through and preached and when Paul came. This is their first experience of preaching. But Paul knew. Paul knew what happened there. He was able to do a test in his mind. Other times where he preached in that sense of of being devoid of the help of God. And on this occasion, knowing that the gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. Came in power. Convicting sinners, converting sinners, sanctifying and equipping saints. It is this which builds the kingdom of God. Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It's not in word, but in power. Now, I want us to get this. I've already touched on it in some previous weeks. I'm I'm going to rub it in again today. This This needs to be understood by us all, not just by me as a preacher. You cannot be satisfied merely coming and sitting and saying, nice message, nice sermon. There needs to be a hunger for the supernatural. A hunger that is born before God in prayer. That is brought as a burden before God in prayer. Where you're seeking God, give us your help, Lord. Give us your power. Give us that which you have promised. We need to have that experience of God coming down. The rending of the heavens, as it were. The visitation of God, where God comes, I know it will not be like the priest's experience at the dedication of the temple. And such was the presence of God, and the the, the whole presence of God kept the priests from even coming in to the building. But God was, was, again, it was was an unusual, it's not normative, but He's establishing something there, isn't He? He's establishing the fact that in this place His presence is to be known. And such is His presence that it can be felt and known and experienced. You say, God is there. God is there. Now if you've never sat in meetings like that, all the more you need to beg God that you experience them. And if you're older and more mature in your years and you have sat in meeting after meeting like that in the past, covet it again at least for your children and your children's children. They would know what it's like to be confronted with God. Not just word only, but power. A.W. Tozer, American preacher, passed on, he's in glory now, but he said this, There is today no lack of Bible teachers to set forth correctly the principles of the doctrines of Christ. But too many of these seem satisfied to teach the fundamentals of the faith year after year, strangely unaware that there is in their ministry no manifest presence nor anything unusual in their personal lives. They minister constantly to believers who feel within their breasts a longing which their teaching simply does not satisfy. I trust I speak in charity, but the lack in our pulpits is real. End quote. And it's even more real today. There is an authority in true preaching that is easier to discern than it is to define. But it is absolutely essential.
Preaching should not just be heard, it ought to be felt. Felt in the preacher and felt in the hearer. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. We communicated the gospel. Paul knew the gospel. Paul went into cities, into villages, into towns, and he preached the word. He knew exactly what to say. But he was able to testify on this occasion, when we were with you, it came not merely as words. I think the word of God is very clear. in how it describes itself, and therefore what we conclude should be the impact of the Word when it, is truly, when it truly comes home to the heart. Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Or in the New Testament, Hebrews 4, 12, For the Word of God is quick, that means it's alive, it's living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, the Spirit of God describes the Word of God like a fire, like a hammer, and like a sword. And as I have said in the past, if you come into contact with any of those things, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel a hammer, you're going to feel a fire, you're going to feel a sword. And the Spirit of God describes the Word in that way. In these ways, so that we understand that it's something that impacts. Fire burns. It doesn't leave things the same, except in the miraculous where God is in the burning bush. But it actually burns. It consumes dross. It deals with sin. And a sword, it cuts and it divides. And a hammer smashes and destroys. And this is what the Word of God should do. Beloved, I say to you, we need to be praying about this as a matter of utmost importance. Our Gospel came not to you in word only, but also in power. Thirdly, a person is ascertained in true preaching. A person is ascertained. Not only do we see that the practice of preaching and the power that attends true preaching, but a person is ascertained in true preaching. And in the Holy Ghost, not only in power, but in the Holy Ghost, Paul testifies that he was not only aware of power, but the source of that power, the Holy Ghost. Often when we talk about the presence of God, when I say we, I mean the church, generally, broadly, we talk about the presence of God, and really all it is is an, an emotional response to various forms of manipulation, psychological manipulation. Music, lights, language of the kind of neuro-linguistic programming. It's all going on in the church today. You see, we have understood that we have become <laughs> so pragmatic in the church. We will get results by hook or by crook. <laughs> and so even in some churches, they will have you know, the, the appeals to come forward and they will have certain individuals in the pews and they get up and they go forward or they put up their hands or whatever. And, they, and that, that's designed to psychologically impact others so they feel comfortable in doing the same. They're not putting their hand up because they need to be saved. They're not going forward because they need to be saved. They're doing it to, to, to try and manipulate those around them. It's going on. Church building 101 today. God have mercy on us. All Paul needed and longed for was the presence of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost. That as he preached the Word, the Spirit of God would very evidently be there. Many of our hymns, they express this desire, don't they? The Holy Spirit to come. 
Thy Holy Spirit, Lord alone, can turn our hearts from sin. His power alone can sanctify and keep us pure within. O Spirit of faith and love, come in our hearts, we pray. And so on and so forth. There's this longing for the Spirit of God. There was a generation, there have been generations that understood this. And we understand it. Many of us. We know it. Deep down we know it. It's the Holy Ghost. And when you come on a Wednesday night, you hear it prayed for. It needs to be prayed for even more. It needs to be more of a burden for it. it. needs to be more of a longing for it. More repetition and asking for it. But it's still there, thank the Lord. On a Saturday morning, the same thing. The need for the Spirit of God to come. Paul understood this was the only thing that was necessary. If the Holy Spirit comes, he testified again to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You see how those two things are married? Power and the Holy Ghost. In the midst of the Great Awakening in 1741, and Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theologian born in this part of the world, he accepted an invitation to preach at a neighboring town, Enfield in Connecticut. His text, as many of you are well aware, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, their feet shall slide in due time. Their feet shall slide in due time. He took that as his text and preached what is now famously known as the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached that message that day, and such was the impact of the preaching that people began to weep under conviction and hold on to the pews in front of them for fear of falling into hell. Such was their sense of being lost and under the judgment of God. That was not the only time he ever preached that sermon. He preached it on other occasions as well. It never had the same impact that it had that day. When John Livingston, a young preacher in Scotland, preached in 1630, a Monday following the communion season in the church at Shots in Scotland, again the Lord gave him unusual help. And the testimony, one of the testimonies of what happened on that occasion are recorded in the following words, I can speak on sure grounds that about 500 had at that time a discernible change wrought in them of whom most proved lively Christians. 500 responded to one sermon. Now, this is the unusual. These are, these are kind of more recent history, day of Pentecost kind of experiences. But, but there's some here today, this morning, and you know what it's like to sit in a meeting where God is so felt and so known and His power is so manifest and you can say the Spirit of God is there and was there and you remember it to this day. It's etched in your memory. The Spirit of God was there. You know it. And the evidence of it was to be seen in the response of lives and hearts giving themselves to Christ backsliders getting right with the Lord and men and women and boys and girls getting saved. These may be extraordinary circumstances, some of these things in history that we read. As I say, we can know it even if it's not just as dramatic as what we have read of. Is God being ascertained in our services? Is He? To what degree do we want that to be the case? I tell you, beloved, very bluntly, if we are prepared to go on without it, we shall. If we are prepared for God to not be here 
dealing with hearts, saving souls, restoring backsliders, moving in lives, and transforming families, if we're prepared for it not, if we're, if we're prepared to accept it not going on, it will not. The Lord longs to be desired and sought. And there is no doubt that He has withdrawn somewhat in the manifestation of His power in His church in these days. But that is not to discourage us. That is to encourage us to seek Him as we have in the past. Finally, you see here, a, a persuasion arises out of true preaching. There is a persuasion that arises out of true preaching because Paul says, Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. There's a question mark here about whether or not this is assurance in terms of the preacher within himself or the reception of the hearers and the assurance that they had within their hearts. But as I say, and as I said from the outset, I think Paul really here is drawing from their personal experience Attesting to what they enjoyed or they experienced when they were there at that time. God was really at work. And one of the ways that God works when He is really striving in hearts and dealing with souls and building His church and extending His kingdom is in not just giving power and a sense of the the Spirit of God, but a sense of assurance in the preacher. That the preacher himself gets overwhelmed with a sense of of confidence in God and in His Word. I think this is something of what Paul, what, what Luke points out about Paul at the very end of the book of Acts. It's just coming to mind just now. I don't have this before me, but in Acts chapter 28, it ends this way. The very end of the book of Acts doesn't end with Paul and his martyrdom. It ends with the work of God continuing. But the last verse of the book of Acts, as Paul is here, verse 30 tells us, he dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, he's under house arrest, and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him, with all confidence, that in this, this near the latter part of his ministry, as he is under house arrest and people are coming to him, it didn't remove confidence from him. In fact, the Spirit of God was using him mightily in this season of life, filling his heart with confidence in the Word that he preached. Real confidence in the Word. Preachers need this, you know. If you think you're the only one sometimes struggles to get up and preach with a real sense of confidence in the Word, or even to think about confidently about the Word and rest in the Word. You're not the only one. You know, for example, you, I, I look at this text and wrestle over preaching it to you. It'd be much easier if it was dealing with themes of things that I was confident we, we knew and we enjoyed. But as soon as I present before you what I believe the text is teaching... It puts an onus on me as well as on you to to enjoy what it is dealing with. It calls out responsibility. And like you, (laughs) we don't want to necessarily run to responsibility, do we? It's calling upon us perhaps uh, the responsibility to seek God for more of His power and His presence and the sense of assurance as the Word is preached. And yet, we have to get up and declare the Word. I thank the Lord for the measure of assurance I have in His Word. And in Him, I believe God is continuing to build His church. I believe that Jesus Christ is still drawing souls And I believe the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, and canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth, and so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So in other words, I understand this. 
When God is pleased to blow this way, nothing will stop it. Nothing. And so what are we doing? What are we doing, beloved? What are we called to do? We are to set our sails for the wind. I can't make the wind come. I can't make the Spirit of God work in the unsaved and save them. I can't make the Spirit of God draw the backslider back to himself. I can't make the Spirit of God unify families and transform homes. But I can set the seal. And you can set the seal. We can set the seal and then pray. Wind of God, blow this way. Come over this place. Blow upon this garden. Crying out for God to visit His church here as He is doing elsewhere. And the Lord begins to work. He works quickly and swiftly often. Surprising so many. I look for that day. I do. And this is where prayer becomes key because prayer was essential in all of this. In the power that attended the preaching, prayer was essential. Look, when you pray for me, you pray that God will make me not just a preacher, but a man of prayer. In fact, you can nearly leave the preaching aside. (laughs) If God has called me to preach the continuing battle largely is in being a man of prayer. And then you get up. You handle the Word with that unction that only God can give. And pray for the congregation. Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher and extraordinary man of gift and talent, but we would be be in error if we, we attributed it all to him. Those five or six thousand that would gather to hear God's servant preach. He understood that the success of his preaching was because of the steadfastness of the prayers of God's people. Here's what he said. Listen very carefully. And ask yourself in what way you're contributing to see the same thing happen today. The prayer meeting is an institution which ought to be very precious to us. And to be cherished very much by us as a church. For to it we owe everything. When our comparatively little chapel was all but empty, was it not a well-known fact that the prayer meeting was always full? And when the church increased and the place was scarce large enough, it was the prayer meeting that did it all. When we went to Exeter Hall, we were a praying people indeed. When we entered on the larger speculation as it seemed of the Surrey Music Hall, what cries and tears went up to heaven for our success. And so it has been ever since. It is in the spirit of prayer that our strength lies. And if we lose this, the locks will be shorn from Samson and the church of God will become weak as water. And though we as Samson did go and try to shake ourselves as at other times, we shall hear the cry, the Philistines be upon thee and our eyes will be put out and our glory will depart unless we continue mighty and earnest in prayer. Many of you are praying. For that I thank the Lord. Keep praying. Do not let up. And if you are not found among the number of those that are earnestly seeking God to come into this place, to visit with power, join the ranks of those that are praying. Look what happened in this city when a couple of men, a few men went in. There was nothing there except the synagogue of mostly people that had no interest in hearing what they had to say. Well, they went in with the Word of God, with the message of the Gospel. And the only other thing they needed? The power, the Holy Ghost, much assurance. We can have our plans and we can organize all day long. But there are no shortcuts to this. It is received 
by seeking God. There is a desperate need in these days. I leave this challenge out to you as we close. Desperate need of holy, spirit-anointed preachers. I'm thankful for what is going on in many parts of the world. I'm thankful for every faithful man in this nation or any nation. I'm thankful for them, but there is a tremendous scarcity of holy men who are anointed of God. There's a part of me wants to be that. There's another part of me wants to see it. Some of you may be thinking about the Lord's will, considering what He would have for you. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand that what happened in Thessalonica was all of God. I do not want you to sit there and think to yourself, I could never do it. I can't preach. I could never preach like that. I could never do this. I could never do the other. I don't have this, these gifts or that gift. You know, when you sit there and you analyze it humanly, you will have a million and one excuses. A million and one. You can list them all and say, here's why there's no possible way it could be the will of God for me to be a preacher of the Word. You know what you need to do? You know what needs to be done more and more in these days? By young men wondering about the will of God. They learn to get alone with God. Get alone. I remember reading things like that. Reading certain books that would, that would press upon my young mind the need to get alone with God. And I took it to heart. And there were times whenever your friends were heading to this place and that place doing recreational stuff. It was all fine. Nothing wrong with it. But I look back and I see how God was shaping, God was molding, God was preparing, and God was convincing the young man who felt he could do nothing for God, the only thing he needed was the filling of the Spirit. The power of God is the only thing. It's the one thing needful. Or as Leonard, Leonard Ravenhill put it in one of his chapters in his book, Why Revival Tarries, in all thy getting, get unction. And it's as available to any one of you as it is to anyone else getting alone with God and praying for unction may the Lord raise up such in these days let's bow together in prayer As we're bowed before the Lord, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, you can't be saved this morning. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That may have not been the primary focus of our message today, but the verse has gone out and into your ears. And if you want to be saved, you can be saved today. You say, preacher, I don't know if I'm saved or not. The path to Christ is the same. Repentance, turning from sin, believing that He has died for sinners, resting in His precious blood. You can be forgiven or restored, whatever the need is. If you're struggling over the will of God, I encourage you, get alone. Get alone with God, with His Word, and stay there, no time limits. Wait on God. Lord, we pray, Thou wilt cause Thy Word to encourage this church that we all will realize that the answer is not in plans and not in great organization, 
What we need in these days more than anything else is the power of the Spirit of God. We pray that Thou wilt make us seekers of Thyself. If ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Help us to tarry in Jerusalem, as it were, until we be endued with power from on high. Multiply, multiply prayer in all of our lives. And let us come every Lord's Day expecting not just a sermon, but God, God present with a message. Save the lost, restore the backsliders, build up thy people. Bring us back here again this evening to worship Thee in Jesus' name. Amen.